Will you pray with me? Jesus, there are some of us in this space this morning that feel like we have nothing to bring. We're, we're singing these songs and we're, we're mouthing these lyrics, God, but our hearts are weary, our souls are weary, and we need you. We desperately need to know that you are holding us, that you are for us, that you are with us, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. And so Jesus, I am asking that you would do a powerful, powerful work of ministry here in our midst over these next few minutes. Holy Spirit, we give you this space. I give you every single person in this room. I ask that you would speak, that you would touch, that you would move. And I'm trusting you. And I know that you are good. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, you can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Jeannie Stevens. I am one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church, and I'm so thrilled that you're here. For those of you that are here in our auditorium, those of you that are in overflow spaces around this building, welcome. We are in our third week of a series on Joseph, the Joseph of the Old Testament, and the series is called It Was All a Dream, and I'm excited to continue in Joseph's story today to see how his story might actually inform our own stories. And I want to give you a quick recap in case you missed the last two weeks. So this is like the, uh, the cliff notes of the last two weeks. So you don't have to go online, although I do encourage you to go online and watch the messages. But if you don't have time to do that, here are the cliff notes of the last two weeks. Joseph, upon first meeting him, you would think that this guy has all the favor in the world. Like everything is going well for Joseph. He is the favorite child of his father, Jacob. His dad gives him this special colorful coat to like kind of like point out the fact that he has number one status. God has given him this unique ability to have dreams and then to know what those dreams actually mean. But all of these so-called blessings eventually end up working against Joseph. Because when he explains some of his dreams to his brothers, they start boiling with jealousy and they hate him even more. And so they decide to throw him in a pit, sell him off to slavery, and then eventually stage his death with their father. So this favor that Joseph had was beginning to feel like God had perhaps forgotten him. So Joseph eventually finds himself as a slave in the home of a guy named Potiphar, and he again finds favor. This is kind of the theme of Joseph's life. There's favor, and then he's being forgotten. So again, he finds favor in Potiphar's house. And in Potiphar, he trusts Joseph. He puts him in charge of the whole household, but the problem is that Potiphar is not the only one that appreciates Joseph, okay? Potiphar's wife also has a deep appreciation for Joseph. And it wasn't in a like, you know, he, she just liked him and wanted to grow a friendship and grab some coffee every once in a while. She like liked him, like way more than a friend. And what happened is that Potiphar's wife kept trying to seduce him into sleeping with her. 
Now, Joseph refused each time, and she eventually was, was done with the rejection. And so she stages this scene that looked like Joseph had attacked her. And when Potiphar came home, he threw Joseph back into prison because he was so angry over the thought that perhaps he had been unfaithful to serve him and had attacked his wife. So again, his favor, this favor of Joseph, turns into a feeling of have I been forgotten? And this is the tension of Joseph's life. Favor, being forgotten. Being adored and then totally abandoned. Being revered and loved and then what feels like complete rejection. And I'm curious, has your life ever felt like that? Has your life ever kind of felt like that? Like you live on a corner of confusion. One part of your life, you can see God's blessings, you can see his goodness, and then there are other parts of your life that seem totally inconsistent and unpredictable. I know I've been there. I still go to that corner some days. And that's where Joseph finds himself. So I want to invite you to grab your Bible. We're going to dive into this story as it continues to move forward today. I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 39. It's found on page 29, all the way to the left. Genesis 39, and we're going to start in verse 20 to see what happens with Joseph. Genesis 39, verse 20, it says this. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was what? The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Okay, so, so Joseph is in prison. And he wasn't in there because of something that he had done, but something that had been done to him. So Joseph is a victim of a crime that he didn't commit, and he finds himself paying the price of the transgressions of another. But the Bible says clearly, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him in prison. And it says that God showed him favor. So the favor returns, right? Here he is in prison. He thinks he's been forgotten, but it says the Lord was with Joseph. God showed him favor. And throughout the entire story of Joseph, the Bible says that the Lord was with Joseph over and over and over again. And what's so interesting to me is that the moments when it says that the Lord was with Joseph was not the moments when Joseph was up on a mountaintop. They were the moments when Joseph was down in a valley. You see, when we feel deserted, when we wonder why God has left us smack dab in the middle of chaos without a map to find our way out of the situation, God remains present. But it often looks different than what we think his presence looks like. The story goes on in verse 22. It says, so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. 
The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So Joseph has total favor. He has total trust of the warden. He's just kind of in there and he is running the prison day in and day out. Again, he finds himself in charge. He finds himself in a position of authority and leadership. This is not new to Joseph. He had been here before. But let's not forget where Joseph is at. Where is he at? He's in prison, okay? He's in prison. Sure, it says that the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did, but his leadership is being tested. And this is not the first time in Joseph's life. His leadership was tested with his brothers, wasn't it? His leadership is tested in Potiphar's house. Even here in prison, his leadership is put to the test. And I just want to pause for a moment because those of us in this room that have ever had dreams to lead something or to build something, to use perhaps a leadership gift that God has given to you, an influence gift that God has given to you, I want you to pay attention to what's happening here with Joseph. God allowed him to rise. God allowed him to gain influence and authority but he also, in his goodness, allowed him to experience failure. And it is in both spaces where our leadership is grown and tested. Leaders that have only tasted the rise, leaders that have only tasted the mountaintops, they never know how to lead people through the falls in their life. Winston Churchill once said that mountaintops inspire leaders, but valleys mature them. And it is so true. And Joseph experiences both. He experiences the mountains and he experiences the valleys. And he opens himself up to God in both now, while he's there in prison, Joseph finds himself with all kinds of different people. There's all kinds of different characters, but two in particular come into his story while he's there in prison. I want you to look at Genesis 40, verse 1. It says this, Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. It was in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard, the warden then, assigned these two guys to Joseph, and Joseph attended to them. So here's two high officials in Pharaoh's court. He's frustrated. Pharaoh's frustrated with them. He throws them into prison, and Joseph is assigned to watch over these guys. It goes on, and it says, After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a what? They had a dream. Interesting. Joseph has something to do with dreams. That same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came back to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? They respond, we both had dreams, but there is no one here to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, well, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. 
Joseph confidently says, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. Joseph doesn't forget the ability that God had given to him, even though so much had been stripped from his life. Remember, where is Joseph at in this moment? He's in prison, okay? He's at his lowest, but he does not allow his outward circumstance to rock his confidence in who God made him to be. So often what happens, we allow our circumstances to wash out our confidence in who God is. But Joseph, Joseph, he humbly and he confidently said, interpretations belong to God and God has given me a gift to give you those interpretations. So look at what happens. Verse nine, it says, so the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me. And on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed. And its clusters, they ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes. I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup in his hand. Makes total sense, just like all of our dreams, right? Verse 12, this is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh's going to come, he's going to lift your head, and he's going to restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup back in his hand, just as you used to do when you were the cupbearer. Now Joseph takes advantage of a moment. Look, look at this. But when all goes well for you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Joseph is no dummy, right? He's taken advantage of a situation. He's like, here's my business card, okay? When you get out of here, don't forget me. The story goes on, though. That's not the only person that had a dream. The next person that had a dream was the baker. And it says in verse 16, when the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds, they were eating them out of the basket on my head. Joseph speaks up. This is what it means. The three baskets are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, if I'm the baker, I'm thinking to myself, I am definitely looking for a second opinion, right? I, am I, I just heard what he said to the cupbearer. He's got to, you know, something must go wrong. Maybe he only has one good dream interpretation inside of him, right? But look at what happens. Verse 20. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. And he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. So Joseph, he interprets their dreams about vines and about branches, about baskets of bread, about birds eating the bread. 
And this turned out to be good for the cupbearer, not so good for the baker. And you would think, you would think that when this happens, when this occurs, that the cupbearer would be so thankful that his life was spared and that Joseph gave him this meaning to his dream that he would return to his position of influence and he would say to Pharaoh, listen, you need to understand the reason that I am back in your courts, the reason that I'm here serving you, the reason I can still put the cup into your hand is because when I was in prison, I had a dream and I met this guy and this guy named Joseph interpreted the dream and you need to get him out of prison, Pharaoh, and he needs to come and serve in your courts. You would think that that's how the story would go down, right? I mean, Joseph, he's on this regular merry-go-round of like God giving favor and then moment of forgetfulness. God giving favor and then moment of forgetfulness. So this looks like the triumphant moment for God to give favor. But look at what happens in verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Chapter 41, verse 1. When two full years had passed. When two full years had passed. Pharaoh eventually had a dream. Now next week we're going to see what happens with that dream. We're going to see what God does. But what I want to pay attention to for the next few moments in those two verses is the moment where it says, he forgot him. He forgot him. Joseph was forgotten. And another two years passed while Joseph stayed in that prison. And it's hard to understand because it seems like the plot was perfectly prepared for Joseph to interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, to find favor yet again, to be released from prison, to go serve Pharaoh, but that's not at all how the story goes down. Joseph was forgotten. He spends another two full years. I love that the Bible says two full years. It doesn't just say that it was two years. It says that those years were full. And I wonder if Joseph could describe what those years were like for him. I bet you he would say they were full of wondering. They were full of waiting. They were full of prayers that seemingly went unanswered. I mean, you gotta imagine that Joseph wondered God, did you just forget me here? Like, did you just forget that I'm here in prison? And I think that this is one of the core questions that all of us ask deep within our soul. Has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten us? It's one of the core questions of humanity. Has God forgotten me? Has God forgotten me? You see, we are not the first and we will not be the last people to ask this question. This question is all throughout this book. From cover to cover, men and women of faith have asked this question, God, where are you? Where are you? Have you forgotten me? And I think we tend to forget that that's a spiritual question. 
It's a spiritual question. You see, somewhere along the way, we created this flimsy and flawed definition of what it means to be a person of faith. That a person of faith, they can't wrestle with doubt. A person of faith, well, they should never have fear. A person of faith, they certainly can't wrestle with wondering if God has forgotten them. And friends, the longer I actually walk in faith, the more I question the person that is unwilling to wrestle with their faith. You see, I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but faith... Faith is about building our confidence in what we hope for and an assurance in what we cannot see. And when we cannot see God and we cannot see how he is moving, it is natural to ask the question, God, have you forgotten me? It is perhaps one of the most natural questions to ask in the maturation of our faith. In fact, David in the Old Testament He's the guy that we call the man after God's own heart. Maybe you've heard King David described that way. David says in Psalm 13:1, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And I think that when we read that, and when we see verses like that in the Bible, I don't know about you, but we can have this tendency to kind of picture people like sitting in some kind of like room and there's some kind of like essential oil diffuser going on and there's like beautiful smell in the room and there's birds outside chirping and they're just there and they're like singing a beautiful melody, Amazing Grace. It hasn't even been written yet, but the birds are chirping Amazing Grace off in the distance and and David is just sitting there at this beautiful Pinterest-like table. He's got a pen with a feather on it, and he's just lovingly sitting there writing and saying, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Friends, I don't think it was like that at all. I don't think you can write a verse like that and not literally say, how long, Lord? No, for real, how long? Are you gonna forget me forever, God? How long are you gonna hide your face from me? See, when I've been in those moments, that's what the prayer is like. And that's the PG church version, okay? I don't know about you, but when I am at the end of myself and at the end of my prayers, I want to know, God, where are you? Where are you? And when we get to a place of asking this question and wondering if God has forgotten us, we start to realize that perhaps we have built a job description for God that is incongruent with the actual character of God. You see, when our purpose and our hope is to live a good life with good people and experience good things and never experience bad things, God becomes merely a means to our end. 
He becomes an object to be used, a genie in a bottle, a cosmic vending machine that waits for us to call, and then he sends down blessings from heaven. And we start to believe that one of God's primary job descriptions is to make us happy and to minimize our suffering. And when we build a relationship with God that is built on that kind of purpose, worship and prayer and adoration actually become a part of a strategic plan to get what we want instead of an opportunity to literally praise and adore the God who is worthy of our praise. And when we have built this kind of relationship with God, when we believe, when we believe that what we wanted was good and then he didn't give us what we wanted and then therefore God has failed us, when we depend on him to give us the good things that we want and to protect us from the bad things that we don't want, we become disillusioned, we feel betrayed and we wonder, God, have you forgotten me? And I wonder, is it Is it that God has failed and forgotten you? Or is it your idea of God that has failed and forgotten you? Because what happens when we don't get what we want is we think God's failed me. God has failed me. But perhaps is it your idea of God that has failed you? And don't get me wrong. I believe the very character of God is filled with love. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love, period, end of sentence. And love desires good. God wants good for our lives. He is not just about loving us before our trials. He's not just about loving us after our trials. He's about loving us through our trials. And while so much of God is still so mysterious, I know that what he gives us is what he knows is good. good. It's what he knows is good. But the rub comes in our life when we don't agree. When we don't agree. And I have been there. I have been there. And often, our disappointments with God are rooted in our wanting something or someone more than God. Did you get that? Our disappointments with God, so often the place where they are rooted in our lives are in our wanting something or someone more than God. And this happens in big ways and it happens in small ways. One moment we can feel delighted in God because he is good and he gave us a great parking spot today. (laughs) He is faithful. He loves his children, especially me, right? And we can be delighted and so love God. I want to sing that song. You're so good, right? You have those moments when you find a parking spot in this city, don't you? (laughs) You don't even believe in God, but you think he's good in that moment, right? And then the very next day, we can feel utterly disappointed because of a diagnosis that takes our breath away. You see, friends, our wants from God range from parking spots to pain-free living and everything in between. 
about a week ago, um, our son, Elijah, who is 10, he's in fifth grade, uh, he was contemplating trying out for the basketball team at his school. And he's never tried out for the team before. He's played, you know, in a few little, um, you know, like, league type things, um, but he hasn't like tried out for the team, worn the uniform, you know, been a Skinner superstar, right? And he was, he was contemplating trying out for the basketball team. And he kept going back and forth, you know, and he's like, I don't know, I'm just not sure. I'm scared. I don't know if I want to do it. You know, and we're like, buddy, you know, whatever you want to do, we are going to be with you. But there was a part of me that thought, you know, we grow through trying and we grow through, you know, whether we win or whether we lose, you know. And so I was like, Lige, I think you can do this. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out my, my best mom coach speech, you know. I'd, I'd seen Hoosiers and I'd seen Rudy and... The blind side and my favorite, the karate kid, you know, and so I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna inspire this young man. He's gonna try out for the team, right? So I give him, I give him my gusto speech, and, and the next morning he comes down to breakfast, he's like, guys, I'm doing it. I'm gonna try out for the team. I'm like, it was my speech, right? <laughs> And so that, that day was the tryouts, and the coach had said, you know, there had to be a parent there at the, uh, at the tryouts. I almost called it an audition, and that would have really, really shown my knowledge of the sport. Um, and so a, a parent had to be there at the tryout, and so uh, Jarrett, Jarrett went, and um, I was so nervous. Oh, my gosh, I was so nervous for him. And um, Jarrett is texting me, and he's like, babe, these kids are big. <laughs> These kids are big. And he sends me a picture, and there's like four giants in the picture, and there's Elijah. And I'm like, those kids are not fifth graders. You know, I'm, I'm literally, I'm getting riled up. I'm in my office, and I'm like, I'm calling those parents. I'm finding out who those kids are. And then he sends me a video because Elijah had run a drill wrong, and the coach said, Elijah, drop down. You got to give me 20. You ran that drill wrong. And I'm like, I'm finding out where that coach lives. You know, and I'm like, I'm here at the church, and they're like two blocks away, and my blood is like starting to get boiled up. I'm feeling intense about this whole thing. He then texts me and says he missed, he missed a shot, babe. You know, like some kid stole the ball from him. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have inflicted a life wound on my son. Like he is going to come home from this. Like, and, and so literally I'm sitting in my office and I start praying and I'm like, God, you got to help Elijah right now. You got to give him supernatural strength. Lord, if he doesn't make this team, he's gonna receive an internal wound. Lord, I've done plenty of counseling. I know what internal wounds are. He is gonna spend lots and lots of money on counseling, Lord. He might go into debt over that. You don't want that to happen, Lord. He might even blame his mother for this one day. Lord, you don't want that to happen. And so the only way that this can be good, God, is if Elijah makes the team. And friends, I am a pastor, okay? I have walked with Jesus for a long, long time. But there was only one way that God was going to be good in this situation. And it was if Elijah made the team. I was so locked into the only way good was going to come out of this is if he made the team. And he came home later that day and I was like, Lige, how'd you feel? How'd it go? And he's like, Mom, it was... It was hard, like it was really tough and there's some really big kids. I'm not sure if they're in fifth grade, but you know, they, 
they tried out for the team, and you know, I, I don't know, and he, and he said this to me. He goes, you know, Mom, I think it's going to be good if I make the team, and I think it's going to be good if I don't make the team. I was like, Lord, I do not agree with him. <laughs> but I appreciate that he is becoming a young man of character. But I do not agree. And all the way through, all the way through, I wanted what I wanted. I wanted what I wanted. And what's so amazing to me was Elijah's just invitation to release the results. To release the results. To release the results that God is good. He's good, period, end of sentence. Now, it certainly helped when he came home on Tuesday and he said, Mom, I made the team. And I was like, yes, you did. <laughs> but we have our own ideas about what a good God should and shouldn't do, don't we? And oftentimes, it's our own ideas of goodness that get in the way of experiencing what goodness really is. We want what immediately feels good. And we often dislike what is in fact good for us. That God is always deeply at work, even when our good dreams die. Even when our good dreams die, God is still at work. And it is one of the mysteries of God that I don't believe we're going to fully understand until we are face to face with him. But when the good dream of having a child remains unrealized, when the good dream for the relationship falls apart, when the good dream of healing leaves you still needing more treatments, when the good dream of the job that you so wanted is handed over to someone else, when the dream for good things to occur for other people, when they go up in flames and all that remains are ashes of pain and despair. And one of the things that we see in the life of Joseph as he again goes around on this merry-go-round of what seems like God's favor and then God's forgetfulness is that God can use broken dreams to awaken better dreams. God can even use our broken dreams to awaken better dreams. You see, broken dreams always open the door to better dreams. They always open the door to better dreams. Most of us, we dream of good marriages. We dream of healthy kids. We dream of fulfilling friendships. We dream of having enough money to enjoy life. We dream of rewarding work. We dream of making a difference in the world. And I want you to hear me, those are good dreams. They're good dreams to have. I have those dreams. I'm sure many of you have those dreams, but those are not the highest and the greatest dream. You see, the highest and the greatest dream that we could ever dream, the desire that if it were granted to us, it would totally and completely fulfill who we are is the dream to know God and to experience him fully. 
That is the single highest dream that we can have. And while I don't always understand it, sometimes God uses broken dreams to travel us down a path to arrive at a better dream. And what I know from the life of Joseph and what I have experienced in my own life is that God is with us. God is with us. God is with you. God is with you. Even in the death of a dream, God is at work. You see, with God, our, our, our broken dreams are never accidental or random. God is the ultimate recycler. He's the ultimate recycler. He never wastes our pain. And sometimes it's hard to, to discover your desire for God when things are going well in your life. You see, there was something that occurred in that prison. And those of you that have been in seasons of brokenness, those of you that have been in seasons of dreams falling apart, those of you that have been in the desert, those of you that have been in the mud, those of you that have walked through the mire, you know that what happens in those seasons is that God awakens your deeper desire for him. There is something that happens in the valley of the shadow of death. But many of us, we get stuck in what God is not doing. We get stuck in what God is not doing. And we start treating God like this genie in a bottle. And we start jumping through religious hoops, hoping that he will eventually give us what we want. And that's not how our God works. God is love. And so his desire is for good in your life, always and forever. This past Wednesday night, I went to a blessing shower for Katie Duggleby uh, on our staff. And uh, it wasn't one of those showers where we gave her onesies and diapers and toys and all that kind of stuff. It was just a blessing shower where we could speak words of, of love and affirmation. And it was so beautiful. Two amazing women in our church created this gorgeous setting for her to be loved on and cared for. And we went around in the circle and just spoke words of affirmation and care and, and love over Katie. And then at the end, we all got up and we, we put our hands on our, on our pregnant belly, you know, and we prayed for her and we prayed for this little baby that was about to come into the world. And I couldn't help but think while we were there praying for her in the beauty of blessing. I couldn't help but remember the night when Kurt and Katie called me up after walking through a season that was far too long of infertility and saying, can you come over because we're miscarrying our baby. And while we were there and we were laying hands on her, I just thought, oh God, if we could have seen this night on that night, if we could have known that in the midst of this broken dream, that you would bring about an even better dream. And I, I don't know what happened on that night because there must have been some serious prayer going in because Katie went into labor the next day um, and delivered her baby two weeks early. So um, friends, you know, if you want your baby delivered, you know, just um, there's a group of women that prayed out. Uh, 
And yesterday we got to go over and, and meet baby Layton. And I think we've got a picture of this little angel. And I really thought about not telling you that story. Because I hate when you go to church and all the time there's always a bow at the end. Okay? Some of you are in a story right now where there's not a bow. And in this room there are some broken dreams. And I don't know why, but I know God is with you. I know God is with you. And you are not alone. You are not alone. And I don't know how the story is going to unfold, but I know the story is going to unfold with God with you. With God with you. So what I want to do is something a little bit different. Those of you that are in a season right now and you are feeling the weight of some broken dreams, we want to pray for you. We want to create a spiritual space of love and prayer for you right now. And so if you find yourself in a season of broken dreams, I I don't know what it is. It could be with a dream for a child. It could be in a relationship. It could be with a job. It could be with a marriage. Whatever it is, I'm just going to ask you to stand right now, and we want to pray for you. So if you find yourself in a season of broken dreams, I just want to ask you to stand in this room in all of our overflow spaces. And here's what I want to ask us to do. You know, we've been on this crazy journey called For the Love. And it would burn my insides apart if we built a building that was called For the Love and we didn't become a church that was For the Love. Can I get an amen on that? We don't want to play church here, friends. We want to do the work of ministry in people's lives. And so no one stands alone in the body of Christ. And so if somebody is standing around you, you get up, you put your hands on them, you love on them right now. Those of you that are standing, this might invade your personal space. I'm sorry. But in the body of Christ, we don't stand alone when we're in the midst of broken dreams. We stand together. We stand united. We stand because Jesus is for us and is with us. And this is the kind of church he's calling us to be. A church that does not walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. And so the rest of you, I'm just going to ask you to put your hand up in the direction of one of these people to pray for them. And Jesus, we ask, we ask that in some miraculous way, that as our brothers and sisters find themselves in seasons where they feel weak, where they feel like they have no voice to sing, where their faith is shaken and their hope is lost, Jesus, would you hold them right now? Holy Spirit, would you minister to them in such a way, God, where they know deep within their core that they are not alone. And Jesus, for those of us that don't find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, God, would you give us a keen sense to know how to love and to care and to hold space and to be with the same way that you are with us. We love you, Jesus. 
And we pray this in your name. Amen. And I'm going to ask us all to stand so we can sing.